Gregoire and Dan Beeston are smart enough to know better. Welcome to episode 135 of Smart Enough to Know Better. We're a podcast of science, comedy, and ignorance. I'm Greg War. And I'm Dan J.J. Beeston. Uh, we're still... And in this a, episode of Smart Enough to Know Better... That's, okay, that's a thing. Wow. Well, I, I actually added a J this week, because uh, yeah, no, I've got one no, to I, spare, so... No, I understand. I understand. I no. I just didn't. I thought. Oh, How wow, many was, J's oh. do you think I should go with? Well, look, there's only one way to know, and that's just keep adding them week after week. Yeah, so. just check the stats, figure yeah, out yeah, which yeah. ones so people... got traction. So when everyone stops listening, we'll know it's because you're stupid J's. Too many J's. Too many, too many J's. J's. Too many J's on the dance floor. Yeah, or they might think I've smoked too many J's. <laughs> In this episode of Smart Enough to Know Better, I'll be making a trunk call. Elephants. It's about elephants. It's right. Yeah, no, we, we got that. Ooh. But before we get there, we have got something very exciting. Yes, there is this a story, Dan, on the interwebs about the lost interview, the secret interview that was never, ever shown by Smart Enough to Know Better that we went out there and basically recorded. Yeah, yeah this started... is the one about blending zebrafish that we weren't no, allowed no, to. No, no, there's another we... one. No? no that, that was, no, we're going, we're going deeper down the rabbit hole now. That there was, that one, that, remember that one? We we're blending to... rabbit's brains? Well, look, we're, we're blending all sorts of crazy things now. We can't talk about that, though, right now. There's a story that there is an interview behind that interview. There is a secret interview that's more powerful than the zebrafish blending interview. How could I not know about this interview? Well, that's... that's Have you gone I'm up sh- and done an interview without me? No, I, no, I, no, I haven't. Well, you, were, you were there. We recorded this two years ago, and it's been waiting, waiting, Dan, waiting in, in the vaults, ready to go for two whole years. I forgot about it, didn't I? You, you totally forgot about it. I put it, it yep. in a file and went, yep. I, I'll just, oh, this one, I'll just archive that one and didn't yep. actually edit it or put it out. And the yeah, person the, that we interviewed, who so graciously gave us their time, has been yes. sitting there for 26 months waiting for <laughs> us to get off our ass and publish her friggin' moment. Her, her 15 minutes of fame has waited too long. I know. So we were, we were very lucky two years ago plus to, uh, we interviewed Dr. Alice Gorman, also known as Dr. Space Junk, talking about all sorts of cool space junk stuff. How it came out was someone on Twitter said, hey, Dr. Alice Gorman, there's these guys called Smart Enough, and you should get an interview with them because they sound like your kind of thing. And she went back, I did get an interview with them. I'll just go find it. Hang on a minute. Where is it? And I went, I'll go find that. Don't worry. And then, no, there was, no, it didn't exist. We'd lost the interview. <laughs> but so anyway, luckily, yeah, the... luckily, your good friend Dan keeps backups <laughs> and archives Woo-hoo! of every episode, including the ones we didn't publish, apparently. <laughs> Thank goodness. So this has been boiling. This is like a slow roast. This is like uh, pulled pork. It's been it's like just been, it's, it's oh it's so it's it's so deliciously juicy now. Two years have been been, been marinating in its own science, and it's still relevant because there's even more space junk than there was two years ago. Let's find out all about it. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Alice Gorman from the Department of Archaeology at Flinders University. Thank you. I'm very excited to be on the podcast. Now, you are at the Department of Archaeology. That makes you an archaeologist, which is really exciting. 
This is true. I am an archaeologist. I have practised as a professional heritage consultant for many years and now I'm an academic archaeologist doing a lot of teaching and research. So just archaeology all the way down. Uh, Lots of whip work. (laughs) We have to get that out of the way. Funnily enough, because I did grow up on a farm, so I am actually capable of cracking a whip and I do a fine bit of cattle and sheep work. kind of incidental to the success of my or otherwise of my archaeological career to be honest so at the end of your f- successful third movie you can ride off into the sunset that's you can actually do that i can actually do oh, that i like Fantastic. i like the notion i see she says that she does sheep work but all i'm envisaging is like a sheep holding a cigarette in its mouth and her like whipping it out <laughs> of the mouth <laughs> that's a big devo <laughs> that's fantastic now here we go then it's as an archaeologist what are you an archaeologist of? I am an archaeologist of space. <gasps> that that doesn't mean that. No, that's not a thing. It's like Prometheus. <laughs> really? That's where you went? No, I don't know. I didn't no, watch it. Not Prometheus. That film was an absolute travesty. <laughs> no one does field work like that. <laughs> well, and that's not how you interpret rock art either. No archaeologists that I know from movies, either Indiana Jones or the archaeologists from Prometheus, know how to dodge sideways. They always just keep running straight ahead from massive things rolling after them. It's very weird. I don't understand. Do you have a problem? Do you have a problem with turning left or right as an archaeologist? Well, archaeologists in general are ambiturners. <laughs> you are correct uh, in the film. Good. It seems some dramatic tension builds from just running straight ahead, but. But agility, we are known for our agility in the field. Fantastic. Now, I think we've glossed over the big point here that we've mm-hmm. just casually gone through. You just said you're a space archaeologist. I am a space archaeologist. I have and... to call crap on that. Well, that's not a thing. You can't lie to us on a podcast. Does that... I'm going to take you down, and this is how. <laughs> so uh, most people think that archaeology is about studying old things, and in general that's true. We do like old stuff, and the deeper in the past it is, the better. Mm-hmm. But archaeology is principally about human interactions with the material world, so the environment, objects, buildings, artefacts, clothes, embodiment. It's it's about how we live in the world mm-hmm. and how we experience the world through things usually outside our bodies. So that means you can do archaeology on almost anything from any time period. And this brings us to another interesting point about when the past begins. Hmm. So there's a, there's a really famous Isaac Asimov short story, and I'm, I'm sure you would both have read it. It's called The Dead Past or The Dead Hand of the Past. And it's about an archaeologist who studies ancient Carthage in North Africa. So that's the city that, you know, Hannibal Mm. and the elephant set forward from to conquer Rome. And Mm -hmm. I'm not very good on Roman history, to be honest. But, (laughs) you know, it's... Yes, that's... Yes, the... So there's an archaeologist who studies Carthage and he's heard there's a time machine and he's trying to find out how to get access to it because he wants to go back and look at that moment when Rome sacks Carthage. Mm. And he follows every avenue that he can and finally somehow or other, I don't remember, he gets to the point where he ascertains that this time machine exists and asks why it's not possible for him to use it. And the answer is because a time machine can go back thousands of years in the past but can go back 30 seconds in the past, a millisecond in the past. Mm. 
So in actual fact, it's the perfect surveillance device. So the end of the story is with this poor archaeologist who just wants to find out what happened in Carthage, being told that there is nothing more powerful than this device because it can be used for 1984 sort of scenarios. So that's kind of what we're talking about here. So if we say the when when what is old? When does the past begin? Well, what actually, if I can I can fix that. Hang on, I'm, I'm going to point out the past starts now. No, wait, now. No, now. Damn it. Now. <laughs> now. This is harder. You keep saying now. it during the present. Now. Oh. <laughs> or did I? I'm remembering it in the past. Uh, this is deep. another interesting point. So there's <laughs> the, the field that space archaeology falls into is something we call the archaeology of the contemporary past or the recent past. Oh. And on that aspect that it's what we remember it's partially about what we remember and obviously mm. you tend not to get that with deeper archaeologies mm. but there's also this concept that comes out in the archaeology of the contemporary past and you'll notice it's a little bit of a, a contradiction in terms it's, isn't it, does it? Feel, it feels very strange to say that yes it's uh... we have this idea of the past haunting the present so the memory of those words you just uttered like they're not archaeological objects they're gone now into the actually they're not they're probably being recorded recorded that's right it's a record yeah (laughs) but i was the last person to figure out what was going on and i was literally looking at the waveform being created (laughs) but i'll bring this back now to the idea that we can do an archaeology of any material thing no matter what its age no matter how recent it is so Space exploration, if you think about it, is actually starting to become a little bit old. Mm, so mm. you look at the, the first rockets capable of breaking free of Earth gravity are developed in the Second World War. So that's you know, how long ago? 70 years 70, ago? Like the space jalopies. Sort of stuff and, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so in, a few year, in, in 30 years, that stuff will be 100 years old. And mm. that's Kind of. I suppose if people are thinking what's like 100 years is quite reasonable. And then you have all the stuff from the 50s that's now becoming, you know, it's very retro. There's, a, you know, a very collectible artefacts mm. coming from the time. So if you look at it like that, in, in fact, it's not so strange to say, okay, well, we can do an archaeology on this stuff. And that's precisely, I guess, what interests me, it's it's because we think we know all about it. It's, mm. it's recent, we have documents, there are people alive who are part of this. So we think we know all about it. You know, because it's close to us and because we're sort of still in it, it means we don't see things because we are in it. Mm. So the archaeological perspective is to say, let's try and distance ourselves from this. Let's try and see how space exploration fits into a much broader trajectory of of human evolution and human culture. Let's try and see the things that we're so familiar with, Mm. like domestic satellite dishes. Not everybody, but they're really common. People are picking up their television through satellite dishes. Mm. But we don't think of them as part of the space age. So that's part of what I'm interested in. It's it's like telling different stories through those objects. But isn't it, isn't it all recorded, though? For example, the Apollo 11 landing site, all the bits that are still there and, and from the, the rovers that went to the moon in later Apollo missions, they're all recorded, though. Like we've got, like, we have video of them and recordings of them and, and rocks brought back from the moon. Is there anything we could learn? If you could go up to the Apollo 11 site, landing site, and see the flag and all the rest, 
is it, do you think there's something that you could actually learn about it? Mm. Absolutely. The first thing is that you would be absolutely surprised to learn how much documentation is missing. Oh. <laughs> so, so you would think, like, we, you, you're absolutely right, like, we have so much stuff. We have, you know, endless, endless rings of archive drawers full of correspondence and plans and equations mm. and notebooks and computer tapes and we have all of those photographs and film. Mm. But the first thing is people, when they're doing these things, they don't notice what's important. So mm. they're not necessarily writing down things that will help us in the future make sense. They're writing down things from their perspective, what's happening at the time. Mm. Mm. So what they observe and record isn't necessarily what we want to know. Yes. The second thing is that everybody is immersed in their own world, so they will represent things from their own perspective. And we may have different questions, we may have different perspectives. So Mm -hmm. the documents may not tell us what's really going on, they may tell us only things from that narrow perspective. And then the other amazing thing is that Stuff goes missing, it gets destroyed. Mm. They erase over videotapes. I've heard this where they go, oh, this moon landing, we'll just erase, erase that because, you know, what's what's the point of it? And you're like, what? Yeah. It's either this moon landing or this original copy of Doctor Who. Yes. Like, it's one or the other. <laughs> Which one's more important? <laughs> the exciting thing about that, though, is that people discover missing documentation mm. all the time. Like, there are a lot of um, Apollo recordings that were found in a shed somewhere. So... <laughs> Stuff goes missing, but stuff gets found. So there's a really interesting interplay between that. So at the time, hmm? these guys are building a rocket and their goal is let's go to the moon, we're going to build a rocket, go to the moon. Beat the Ruskies, etc. What is it that they weren't thinking about that you guys do think about that's important? One thing they didn't think about was how they interact with the objects and the machinery. So they're focused on doing a task. And we are interested in what that task or what that interaction with the machinery can tell us about philosophies and ideologies, Mm. can tell us about that worldview. If you look at some of the plans and designs of a lot of these early rockets, so there's, there's a tension between, say, attempts to make use of microgravity Mm. the environment where you can move in any direction and there's no up and down and things float when you leave them. And then Mm. there's attempts to replicate a gravity environment so people are familiar and comfortable. They know a door will always be in here in relationship to a window or Mm. a piece of furniture will have a certain thing that a piece of furniture rests on is what you think of as the floor. So there's a kind of a tension between how you design those internal spaces. Mm. And it's not all driven by what's efficient or technologically most useful or possible, it's driven by a whole range of ideas about how you interact with different environments, ideas about how people move and live in space. Mm. So from an archaeological perspective, a really interesting thing to look at is how are people adapting to microgravity inside a spacecraft, like the International Space Station, inside Mm. a spacecraft, Mm. are they using that space as it's designed, are they subverting that space Mm. as they adapt to a microgravity environment, which has often largely been built by people who were never in it and don't live in it themselves, (laughs) what do they change? You know, how do they... I suppose an analogy is in the prehistoric context, 
imagining in the sort of mid-Holocene, you know, five, six thousand-ish years ago in Australia, mm. the climate got more favourable. It had been fairly dry and water shortages and things like that before then. So the climate got quite favourable and Aboriginal people started to recolonize mm. environments that they hadn't been in for a while. So they're going into new environments with different climates and vegetation. Yeah. So the archaeological record there, and this is something a lot of archaeologists are interested in, a lot of Aboriginal people are interested in too, it can show us what they did, how they adapted, how did they bring the knowledge they already had and bring it to bear mm. on that new environment. So it's kind of the same thing that something like the International Space Station. Just to kind of put that into context, so what you're saying is based on the the archaeological, so so, such as looking at the International Space Station, something that recent, you're you're also saying how how it was built, how they thought it was going to be used, but how it is actually used will lead to better understanding for future spaceships, future spaces in space. Exactly. Mm. Yep, that's exactly it. So, in fact, you're making an interesting point there too. So I'm kind of interested in it because I'm interested as an archaeologist in human behaviour. But there is a practical application, an archaeological study of how people actually use space spaces, mm. you know, space mm. stations, space capsules, as opposed to what they say they do, mm. could provide really interesting information that you could use in future design. So, yeah, it's, it's not an entirely theoretical out there idea. Yes. There are some practical ways you could use this information. Mm. I bet there's a bunch of quite interesting assumptions that are being made on the ground that once they get up there, they're like, oh, this doesn't work at all. We're going to have to do this very differently. <laughs> <laughs> The one that gets me is, so I talk about the Apollo mission, the one that always, I think about that is you realise that because, you know, weight costs money to fly into space. So it's ridiculously expensive to take kilograms of stuff. So a fuel is, is, you know, is rare, it's scarce. So once they got to the moon and human bodies doing what human bodies do, there must be now bags of poop on the moon. <laughs> there must just be endless bags of human feces sitting in like just sitting on the surface. They didn't they wouldn't have buried it. Like it's got to be there still. That just keeps going through my head all the time. It's like because there were a lot but of <laughs> You are correct. You are correct. Yes. There is bags of human poop on the moon. But this is something that's interesting as well. So each mission had a different relationship to astronaut waste as we call it oh. in technical terms so for some they just like apollo 11 they just left bags of it on the moon like on the surface but, just sitting on the surface just no on the surface. lit outside someone's back door <laughs> in a paper bag on fire <laughs> and there's, Take no... that moon, man. <laughs> they're sealed like they're in sealed bags mm, so mm. contamination isn't a problem in the short term although we don't have a clear idea how some materials will break down in lunar environments. Mm. But other missions, they took that stuff back with them because they needed to know things about astronauts' diet and stuff Mm. like that. So Mm. every human space mission designed has a different relationship to astronaut waste. So on Skylab, this is something I find fascinating, the poor Skylab astronaut had to keep and weigh everything that left their body. (laughs) And it was all sent back to Earth for some poor scientists to analyse. And they hated it. They had a really <laughs> awful time. There's actually, but, um, Douglas Adams wrote about that. There was a planet, mm-hmm. one of his Douglas Adams stories about when you went to the planet, they weighed you, and then you had to keep yeah. an eye on what you, like you, you ingested and you, and you excreted, and any difference in mass had to be removed from you when you left. 
So it was, it was like a... It was vital that you keep a receipt yes, when you go to the bathroom. That's right, yes. <laughs> so good old Douglas Adams is ahead of the game again. Well done, him. A little bit like that. Um, <laughs> from that data, so no astronauts, so they still do study and keep samples and that kind of stuff. But mm. the best data we have on the effect of microgravity on calcium retention in bones comes from that Skylab mission. Because it was so horrible and arduous, and mm. no astronaut's ever going to do that again because it was so horrible. So yes, it would be. <laughs> you just this is the thing we're so in, in the first world. We just want to be able to go. I go to the toilet. The magic machine takes all the terrible things away from me. I don't have to look at it, see it, smell it. Nothing. It goes away. I don't care where it goes. Just vanish. Oh no! I I want a digital readout on my toilet. <laughs> I want to do a full scan every time just to go. Hey. Maybe a little bit more fibre, Mr. Beeston. <laughs> it's Japan toilets are for you. But, but in space, you, you have no choice but to you know that it's there with you. It hasn't gone somewhere. Though, though I, mean, I think we're getting a bit poop-related here, but but I know that, that the astronauts would do things like sometimes, I don't know, now with modern spaceships, but they would put their pee out the window and that sort of stuff. So they're not, not literally out a window, but they, they, they'd spray it out into the universe. Anyway, that's a different thing. Yeah. <laughs> so. And there's a wonderful photo of the space shuttle when it used to come back. They often had to replace the windows on it because they'd been damaged by mm. collisions with little tiny bits of space junk. Mm. And there were some long traces, like something had impacted with the shuttle window and left a little yellow smear. (laughs) That was hypothesized to be frozen urine from a number of missions. So (laughs) the sort of twinkling of frozen urine in the the changing sunlight was a really romantic. I think that's a bit selfish on their behalf Mm -hmm. because, as we all know, that as far as water, what we've got is all we've got. Mm -hmm. Like, you take it out into into space and you set it free, that's water that we're not getting back. (laughs) Put it back into the water cycle. That's That's, what I say. You make a very good point, actually. You make an excellent point. I often do (laughs) when I'm indignant enough. It would be, it would de-orbit, surely. It's not going to be, it's not going to be, oh, no, it's in orbit. I suppose it's not going to come, no, it must come down occasionally. It depends, again, what mission it's from. So for many of the space stations, Mm. then they they orbit around an average of 200 kilometres or so, Mm. so that stuff will all re-enter. But if there's stuff that was ejected on lunar missions, Mm. so I'm not sure about this, I've never checked, probably should, (laughs) then it is quite possible that it is out there as well. It's Mm. also possible that some of it has gone into quite eccentric orbits. (laughs) I don't think a lot of this stuff will be too small to be being tracked so relies on visual confirmation or return surfaces. <laughs> but something I would argue from an archaeological point of view again, mm. this is stuff that in the future you could potentially extract DNA and other complex mm. biomolecules from to tell something about the populations that produced it. Yeah. And there's now a new method you may know more about this than me. There's this new method, CRISPR, of replicating DNA and other molecules that might actually work better than the polymerase chain reaction method of replication mm. that was the dominant one until recently. So there might be new potential to study this stuff. Yeah. And something that I've often thought as well. So something we need to know more about is what happens to human tissues when exposed to the space environment. Mm. And obviously we don't want people to kind of experiment with that too much. 
But this frozen, Are we going to take a dead body up to space? This is a whole other... Well, this could be an archaeological experiment. It's the sort of thing archaeologists do on Earth. Like we bury bodies. We don't, Not human ones generally. Mm. But you bury some carcass in a certain location and study what happens to it over time, dig it up again and see what's happened. Mm. And it's possible there may be a parallel between what happens to human proteins that have existed for... 100,000, a couple of million years in archaeological terrestrial contexts. It's long, long term and how they break down and how we can recover them. And what happens to human complex proteins in space over that short term? Maybe there's something to be learned by looking at how these yeah. molecules denature and disintegrate. So mm. on Earth, mm. in a couple of million years, you know, they may be exposed to radiation at a much lower level because obviously it's protected by the atmosphere, might be fed by dirt, mm. but over for a very long period of time, whereas in space this stuff is subjected to incredibly high radiation of a much wider range over a short period of time. Mm. Can we learn something by that comparison? I would argue that we probably can. Mm. Greg, would love to do that. Yeah, but... You'd love to be, when you oh. die, buried in space. Oh, goodness me. Just, just... Pose him like Superman and then push him out the airlock. <laughs> Future generations to discover. To marvel at. <laughs> well, you know, we could design a good experiment. If you donated your body to science, we could design, we could take a bit of you up there and put you outside in, in or we could, you know, take a different organ or limb and <laughs> put it in different locations in different materials on a, a test spacecraft. Can I choose which and- organ? Because <laughs> I've got an idea. <laughs> Thanks, Dan. Have you? I'm not sure I want to hear what the idea <laughs> Thanks, Dan. What's that rocket-shaped object on the radar? <laughs> Stop it. The, the, um, I like that idea of uh, uh, now, Greg, can you please put your hand into that porthole there? Uh, where, does it, where does it go to? Oh, don't ask the questions. Just put your whole hand out the hole. <laughs> it's like, all right, what does it feel like? Nothing at all. Excellent. <laughs> Dare I make a gom jabbar comparison? Ah-ha! Yes. If you don't make a noise, that a, a, a true human being won't ever make a noise because you have to control yourself. So I am scorpions! The, I'm big space scorpions! <laughs> I'm the Quizach Hatterach! Anyway, enough of that. Um, <laughs> it's like the idea that half the audience just went, what is he yelling? Anyway, look it up, Quizach Hatterach. It's me. That's a, it's a Harry Potter thing, it's a, isn't Yeah, it? it's a Harry Potter thing. It's he a, plays Quidditch Hatterach. Uh, <laughs> but okay, talked about poop enough now. <laughs> it, that's it's we weird for me. That's weird for me to say. But up on Mars right now, we've got curiosity and we've an opportunity. And Spirit's not doing anything at the moment. But there's lots of things out there that would also be useful. I'm assuming once when we do get up there, I'm assuming it will be useful to go find these amazing rovers of ours and prod them. And and I mean degradation of the metal and even things like yeah. do does bacteria survive on them? That sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. So they're archaeological sites, but they also have all of this information that could be really, really useful for us to know. And this is where archaeologists have a bit of a different perspective on materials and decay. Mm. And so an archaeological perspective could be really useful in having a look at what happens with these things. And again, we're used to looking at what happens to materials, you know, metals, plastics, ceramics, stone, Mm. in a whole range of different environmental contexts. So as archaeology, those Martian sites are really fascinating. I get the feeling I'm missing a point here because I keep looking at it as a, a, like material science or as a DNA, but I feel that you're not saying that as... I've, I feel I've missed something. Yes, yes, you are. There's, there is, in fact, a difference between applications of 
an archaeological approach and the actual archaeology itself. And I suppose if, I, if we're looking at something like the Martian sites, then the sorts of things an archaeologist would be interested in is the objects themselves, you know, the little mm. rovers and spacecraft and everything, but also the traces they leave on the surface and what that says about how humans imagined the Martian environment to be and the kinds of technological solutions they came up with to the problems they had, like getting a rover to move across this terrain. Mm, mm. And things like perhaps coming back again to that example of Aboriginal people moving into new environments mm. and having to adapt. How does that information feed back in and what's the next generation of technology? What are the material things produced in response to certain kinds of knowledge? Mm. And looking at what the things are, where they are, and the traces they leave uh, can tell part of that story. It's like human decisions made on Earth, but the other really interesting thing here, it's also those autonomous, they're not entirely autonomous, obviously, mm. but they're not, there's no human there sort of prodding them along no. saying go this way. It's... So there's a level to which they are making decisions in their environment as well. You know, they're not at this point sentient. They're not at this point. We hope. Um, <laughs> you know, learning robots or anything. Yeah. But they, in their own way, there's a sort of a machine environment interaction there, which mm. is also of great interest. You know, to put it really simplistically, I suppose, but if you've got the human environment interaction, these things are far away from us. They're on another planet. So it's like a third point to that. Yeah. There's an interesting sort of feedback thing oh. between those things. And that's the bit, for an archaeologist, that's the bit where we're saying, well, what's going on here? What can we learn by looking at these interactions and how the materials are used? And what does that say about the worldviews? Mm. of the people doing it. And I suppose you could say an easy way to sort of see how that works is to say imagine 100 years into the future and there are already thriving Martian colonies, let's mm. say. I hope. What is it? <laughs> to, yeah, we are, to look back on this stuff and with that perspective you'll see different things. With that perspective mm. they might say, like they do now, how on earth do they ever get these things to work? Mm. As people say, they sent Apollo 11 to the moon on with the same computing power as, as a really dumb smartphone. Yeah. <laughs> so so the, then the questions become more obvious. You, you think, well, well, what was the worldview in which that technology came into being mm. and what were the hopes and the aspirations and the politics and the social lives that sent it there? And that's what we'll be looking at. So those people may not be there anymore, Yeah. but we can still say something and it might not be what they expect or might <laughs> want about them, I suppose. Yes. So, yes. We yeah. hope we hope the future looks favourably upon us, but if, yeah, it, it might not. Uh, uh, the, it's interesting about the decisions we make because they talk about some spaceships they send into space and they sterilise them entirely. Or so the Cassini probe when it when it crashes into into Jupiter or has crashed. They we're going to crash it in and we're going to so the Huygens side, not not the Cassini. They they like we have to burn it up. It has to burn up because we don't yeah. want it to contaminate. So sometimes it was very important and sometimes with the rovers are like, we don't think we did that properly, but it's a big thing. Like, do we contaminate Mars with our own microbes on the... Yeah. And, and so but so that's important to us now, but in the future people might go, there was no chance of them surviving or it made a big garden. Like, we, we just don't know. So... Uh, <laughs> 
wonderful example. That really is a fantastic example. So archaeologically, you might be able to say we can see a real change in mm. the amount of biological agents present on this material. What did it mean in terms of human behaviour? So mm. I, I love that example. That's fantastic. Did we change the world that we're going to investigate? Like, are we, is it pristine anymore? <laughs> and is that a thing? I, I read an article a lot about this saying people arguing either way about investigating a planet, is it okay to change it by being there or do you just have to accept you are going to change it or you say, no, we're not going to change it, we're going to leave nothing but footprints kind of thing. I think it's interesting. Very much more The clever. great footprint disaster of Betatron 7. <laughs> <laughs> much more clever people than me had this, and Dan obviously, uh, had, <laughs> had, this, uh, had this argument in an essay. I get the feeling like when we started this interview, I, I felt it was very jokey, like space archaeology. I, I came at it from a comedic point of view but now you're talking and now I keep feeling there's a lot behind this curtain that I can't quite grasp I keep I feel like I'm groping around in the dark at the moment so is there any value in doing space archaeology on projects that are literally happening right now because you're coming at it from a different perspective yeah well I think there is so a discussion I've had with other archaeologists is whether we should count operating missions as archaeology mm. And I think, yes, we do, because it's just, it's just a matter of time, you know. You put a satellite in orbit, three weeks later, mission is over, it's not working. Mm. So it's only a difference of three weeks between it being archaeology or not archaeology. So <laughs> it's a rolling date. So I don't make any distinction. I look at everything as part of a system, I suppose. So things that are still working are just all the more interesting because you have the opportunity to get different kinds of data from them. So something like, you know, the International Space Station, you might say it's like a natural laboratory for looking at how different nations approach technology. So you could see different national styles. And this is interesting. So in archaeology, there's a huge critique of nationalism as a driver of or as a definer of culture. And the International Space Station, you have distinct nation states who are contributing hardware and software and astronauts or cosmonauts, and then you chuck them all together in a sealed capsule. <laughs> yes. So in terms of understanding how does a national or ethnic identity manifest itself in that engagement with space hardware, mm, mm. you could do a lot of really interesting stuff around that. Yeah. And you, about sort of cross-cultural engagement and how different technologies are adopted or are fluid, how identity works. These are all big questions for mm. archaeologists. So, yeah. So, Perspective is really interesting. It's something I'm a bit of a lefty, socialisty kind of person. It's one of my greatest weaknesses. Scum, scum, <laughs> and and I, especially with science and things that are going on around me, I always feel that I can go, "Yay, humans!" So like when LIGO discovered gravitational waves, I was like, "Yay, us! We did an amazing thing!" And then like New Horizons yeah. went past Pluto, and I was like, "Oh my goodness, we're amazing!" And then we even like the Chinese put their probe on the moon, and they were running around with their little their their rover, and I was like, "That's brilliant! We're we're so clever." And and and, I, and people are like, but that's the Chinese. It doesn't freaking matter the nation who did it. It's the fact that this great ape got up there and actually did that thing is what impresses me. I don't. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm a nationalism always makes me feel fun. I'm not though. that impressed. This is a very hubris-filled ape. <laughs> Look at us. We can travel beyond the gravitational pull. Ook ook ook. You're right, though. We we have to learn like. 
the because it is different. People do look at the world differently, and people do. I mean, I look at the world differently to Dan, and Dan looks at differently to you, Doctor Gorman. So it's, I guess, if you put people in a cage in, in, or in a can. I, I suppose that's writ large at that point. It's like it's you're going to have to get on, and you're not going to see the world with the same lens. And that's going to manifest itself in different ways. Mm, mm. And in some of those ways, there might be the same things again. We might see reflected in archaeological sites on Earth. Mm. And I don't know. Let's imagine the space station abandoned, and what someone would make of it if they came in and tried to figure out what went on just from the stuff that was there. Although They've sadly, left, left a lot of shit up here. <laughs> They've left a lot of poos. You'd think they'd take them back with them. Once again, here we are. Here we are again. Back here. We'll come right round. Could call it tenacious. Fu- it's the fundament of our interview. Uh, uh, thank you very much. Very well done. Everyone, you... everyone, half day, everyone. <laughs> if, uh, but, but in all seriousness, if you could, if I right now, I said I have a budget to fund any one thing that you need done in a space archaeological sense, what would, what would it be? What would be the thing that you go, oh, my goodness, it has to be this thing for space archaeology? Oh, my heavens. No one's ever asked me a question like that before. Really? Oh, I don't have any money, by the way. I'm yeah, very yeah. poor. I pointed out I'm a, I pointed out I'm a, I'm a socially lefty person. We're not the richest people you, on the planet. You seem so. shocked that someone in, who works in space technologies and such has never been offered an enormous amount of money. <laughs> that's a pretty common thing that's I've true. heard. This is true. This is true. <laughs> I want somebody to come along and offer me an enormous sum of money I do and I'd be willing to do almost anything in exchange for that sum of money. (laughs) But this is what I would do. This is what I think is the critical project that we need right now Mm. because there's only a handful of people really working in this area. Mm. We need to catalogue properly everything that's up there because we don't yet have a complete catalogue that is actually useful from this perspective. Really? That's Yeah. That's There's scary. a whole bunch of chunks of information in different places. Mm. We need to integrate that and then work out what are the next steps. We need we need to create a digital repository of human material in space, everywhere in space, that is consistent enough to be used for future comparison. So you could give you could give your millions of dollars to me <laughs> and I will coordinate a research team and I will make that happen and then I'll, we will produce information which will inform our future space endeavours and which will give us insights into our relationship with the solar system and the universe. That is what I will do for your millions of dollars. Well, if there's any Russian oligarchs listening to this, like the, the multi-billionaire Russians who just seem to give money to SETI and things like that, and you listen to the podcast, well, you That's know. SETI, those clowns, they've, they've had enough money. It's my turn in the sun now. <laughs> Seti, those clowns. Uh, there's a there's the quote for the interview. I think. Okay, maybe we need to edit that bit out. <laughs> That's all. Right. Oh, I have great respect for Seti. I want to make that. That's right. it's okay. Artists who work for them. It's amazing, and, amazing work. Um, and I do regularly draw on their publications and resources, so I don't really think they're clowns. No, it's right. <laughs> With space archaeology, if if we did find someone else out there, another intelligence of some sort, or another just another life form, would that change space archaeology, or would that be not? Is it only human interaction with the material world, or is it? Well, 
technically, yes, it is only human interactions. That's also called astrobiology or xenoarchaeology or there's a couple of other terms. <laughs> but obviously that's interesting. It's sort of archaeological because hmm. if you find something that's dead, if you find the traces of some species that's yeah. no longer around, the sort of archaeological question about that is, is sort of how do you tell something, the traces of something created by a living thing or a sentient thing mm. from the natural environment. Mm. It may be really difficult for us to tell. We know what it looks like here because we know what human intention looks like. Right. But in different environments, those things may not be obvious at all. So, again, an archaeological eye could be really useful because what archaeologists are used to doing is looking at the ground or rocks or kinds of deposits and working out how to extract information from them despite decades, hundreds of years, thousands of years, millions of years of decay, if mm. you like. So mm. that's the thing that we know how to do and there's some usefulness for those skills in the environment where you might be looking at a non-human species. But this is one of those sort of fuzzy grey areas yeah. like they kind of all into all into one in a little bit. You'd get a phone um, call. If they found if they found a monolith, you know, a large monolith <laughs> on the moon, like one like a hundred meters under the surface, you'd get a phone call, wouldn't you? They'd go, Dr. Gorman, we need you to come very quickly to this place and have a chat to us about something. Uh, well they'd better do. They had better do. If I am not the first <laughs> phone call that they make, then they need to get a new Rolodex. <laughs> well, the, well Rolodex, Rolodex. <laughs> that, that's the problem Rolodex. on a ro- <laughs> Rolodex. I know we, we know what it is, but we're just kind of we're hoping they're a bit beyond Rolodexes at this point. Gee, she really is an archaeologist. She's... <laughs> <laughs> oh, shut up. <laughs> so this thing's from the past, but it still looks useful. <laughs> no, well, and also this is going to be a dumb example. I mean, something obviously like a monolith would be obvious, but but even something like this can sound very strange. But in the movie Avatar, the humans were after the Unobtainium, which is a shocking name for a resource. But they they were saying, <laughs> oh, the people like the Avatar people, I can't remember the call, the big blue peak cat peoplely things. They're like, oh, they're primitives because they don't have of laser yeah. ships and guns and, and yeah. hammers, but actually they had a connection with the with the world tree and that sort of stuff. Why am I recounting the silly movie? I don't know. But it's, I can't believe you remember yes. any of the plot to that <laughs> Sorry, film. It's, it's, and that was the thing, because they were very advanced people, but it didn't look like that from the human's point of view. So they needed a xenoarchaeologist to come along and go, actually, yeah. there's intent. Uh, <laughs> that is true. And the interesting thing for me about Avatar was, as somebody who's worked in Indigenous heritage management in industry, mm. this is exactly how it works. So what is valued? Whose heritage is valued and why? And that old scheme of it predates Darwinism, but mm. it was very much co-opted in the social Darwinist era of, you know, primitive, barbarian, civilised. Mm. So mm. if you're primitive, and that's how Aboriginal people were constructed as well, mm then you're just naturally destined for extinction and your land can be taken. So mm. all of those metaphors and tropes came out to play in Avatar. And I actually really liked Avatar. I'm going to confess that. I thought it was a great movie. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, culture is manifested in different ways mm. and they're not always material or visible or obvious. So mm. I think that point is absolutely true. The absence of laser rays, doesn't necessarily entail anything about sophistication. Mm. So the categories we bring to these things, and I suppose this is another place where archaeology is useful. So in the space world, there's a whole lot of talk about this exploration and the human urge to explore and 
colonisation and technology and sophistication and all of this stuff, and a lot of it is really 19th century social Darwinist, colonialist sort mm. of stuff. Yeah. So, uh, so then that's a worldview thing as well. So once you've got the whole space archaeology and looking at, I mean, that's I mean, you're not talking about space archaeology, you're just talking about archaeology in general here, but, but that makes a bit more sense in my head of, well, I try not to think of people at any point saying, we're evil and we're here to do evil stuff. They just believed the world was a certain way and they unfortunately did bad things because of that that mindset. And so, but they wouldn't think, in this case, the colonial concept, they probably wouldn't think of themselves as bad. That's true. I mean, it's not that there weren't people who were pulling apart the colonialist enterprise at mm. those times, but, yeah. you know, they were doing what was normal to them. Yes, yeah. And the thing we have with space, though, like we have an opportunity for it not to replicate 19th, 18th, <laughs> 19th century colonialism. And we should be trying really, really hard to make it not be a mirror of all those values. Yeah. So I suppose, again, as an archaeologist, reflecting on the past and how that stuff has played out mm. gives me a particular perspective on what we need in the future. And I think I'm pretty sure talking to – I feel like I know you quite well now. I'm pretty <laughs> sure you'd agree with me that we need dialogues of how we engage with space mm. that are new, that are not just repeating that tidal stuff of mm. let's go out and conquer things. Mm, mm, take it over or, or claim it. You know, this part, this, this planet is now belongs to the Australia and that we, only we can mine it and this moon belongs to America and only they can mine it and that sort of this stuff. This planetoid belongs to Ming the Merciless. Yeah, let's go sort that out. That's right, yeah. <laughs> So, and it's, I feel we're kind of on the way there, as in at the mo hopefully it doesn't change, but the idea that space belongs to no one. Well, no, hang on. Space belongs to everyone. So it's, it's, it belongs to, it's the, middle of the aliens would be really annoyed by that when they work that one out. But, but, but beyond that, it belongs to everyone. Everyone listens to this podcast. Everything up there is yours. It's, oh, you it's, see, you're opening a very dangerous door there because oh, yes. it's like, oh, and Earth is everyone's as well. Yeah, well. It, and aliens are like, Oh really? really? Well, maybe we'll just move in <laughs> no, there for a no, couple of no, no. weeks. Everything above the atmosphere is everyone. Oh, this is ours. This is this ours. Is ours. <laughs> everyone stay the f off our planet. <laughs> That's right. But everyone, everything else is everyone. Well, we, we we just did. So we, we'll bleep. We'll we'll bleep it out. It's okay. That's right. Okay. It's but look, I think this is really critical stuff. This is really critical stuff because the dialogue around space is going to change in the next decade. Mm. And if we don't fight for that idea that it's a global commons, that it's a common heritage of humanity, that it is ours, mm. well, we're going to have to fight for it because I tell you right now, people are going to be trying to dismantle that idea that space belongs to everyone and they're going to be trying to dismantle it as hard as they can mm. and a lot of it will be behind the scenes. So we are going to have to fight for our right to space. Yeah. I, I think it's going to be corporations more so than national interests because there's going to be a lot oh, of yeah. – when a mountain of platinum floats past the earth and we capture it and bring it to us, there's so much money up there. And if you just want to think in a purely yeah. capitalist sense, it's just going to be – I mean, it'll do great things for us. Mind you, my neo-utopian ideas of post-scarcity, but it could be amazing for us, but also could be amazing for a few people who make a lot of money. So mm, I, I agree. Yeah. We need. We don't want a TPP that's a, like a trans Milky Way, trans Plutonian partnership. Yeah, no. we don't want that. Oh my God, you're scaring me now. Yeah. <laughs>
It could happen. If we want space to belong to all of us, I think we need to fight for that. And keep it in mind. People go, what's the point of us? Why do we need to know about space archaeology? Why do we need to know about this stuff? If we don't, if we don't actually stand up and say, no, we want this to belong, it's the common heritage of all human beings, then, then it will be taken from us. Because people don't realise... Before we even realise it's important. Yeah, you're exactly right. Mm, mm. Well, you're exactly right. I'm just agreeing with you. So there you Me too. <laughs> I'm agreeing too. I like it. I like it. How does someone become a space archaeologist? Did you just wake up one morning and went... Well, it wasn't one morning. It was a moment in time after I'd been at work all day and I realised that space archaeology could be a thing and I decided I was going to do it. So there was there was an actual moment when that happened and then I... This is a story for another time. I abandoned everything I was doing in my life at that time and set off to pursue space archaeology. That's amazing. I love that idea. That's such a – you made it happen. That's so great. Dr. Gorman, thank you very much for being on Smart Enough to Know Better and uh, hopefully we can talk to you again in the future. Greg and Dan, it's been an absolute pleasure and I will look forward to our next chat. That was worth the wait. Oh, my goodness. Thank goodness. That was worth the wait. Thank you to Dr. Alice Gorman talking I, about I space I kind of wish I'd forgotten about a crappy interview, like and not a good one. <laughs> I know. Like... <laughs> one we're just too embarrassed to put out. That wasn't the reason. Anyway, <clears throat> we, um, we're professionals, 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 professionals. Okay, elephants. It's about elephants. We've already established that. Or or luggage. It could be about luggage. They have big brains. Elephants, not luggage. Luggage, not very smart. Not very smart at all. Okay, and they're social. I'm sorry, I do have have to jump in and say, I know if I don't mention, we use the word luggage, and with our fan base, if I don't mention Discworld, the luggage, then people get angry. Yes, I'm sure it is quite intelligent. We're not going there, though. It's not intelligent. It's blind rage. But that's that's what I have. What are you trying to say? Well, uh, thankfully, you're not smart enough to work that out. <laughs> I'll kill you. Ah! Okay, elephants. They've got big brains and they're social. So they've got... and they cannot lie. They got big brains and they cannot lie. You other pachyderms can't deny when a big elephant walks in with. Elephants have great big brains and they're quite social. So they've got to be able to communicate. Mm. They've got to secure their defences, warn others of danger, coordinate group movements, uh, reconcile differences uh, in a way that doesn't involve just stabbing each other with their teeth, uh, attract mates, reinforce family bonds, announce their needs and desires, and reinforce stereotypes about their fear of mice. Uh So if an elephant is right next to you, oh my God, there's an elephant right next to you. No, if an (sighs) elephant is right next to you and it wants to tell you something, it can just touch you. Yeah, let's go, let's go. And that we do that too. Tap people on the shoulder or yep. headbutt them. Like that's a that's a that's a touch thing. But elephants have 160 different visual and tactile signals, expressions, and gestures in their day to day interactions. They get their noses all over you. <laughs> so imagine if you could smell with your hand. Uh, this, right. This is why elephants never domesticated the dog because they don't want to pick up after them. No, that, that would be gross. That would. <laughs> That's the only reason. Yeah. That's the only one. That's the, the only, only reason, reason. they the dogs. They thought about it. They're like, no, let's not do that. Let's just, let's just not do that. Okay. Their noses hang to the ground and they can smell where they're going. <laughs> now, the elephant has moved a couple of meters away from you. For right, you thank goodness. Yeah. For US listeners, uh, a meter is an alternate unit of measurement. <laughs> uh, it's like, like a foot or an inch. One of them. Okay. 
I'm just giving them the groundwork to no, help no, no, them out. No, 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 I understand. I don't, I, understand. Want to, I don't want to feed it up to them on a plate anymore. No, no, you, yeah, and you, you, we've got to train them slowly but surely. Yeah. Uh, also, actually, no, to help our American cousins, a uh, one metre is 1.05 by 10 to the negative 16 light years. Oh, well, that, 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 there, that works out. That's, yeah, a, that's, that's a, good, yeah. That's something so that we point, can both agree on. We'll just work let's back Let's just there. round it up. 1.06 by 10 to the negative 16 light years. There you go. That's right. That'll make it easy for you. Yeah. There you go. Never say we don't, we don't pander to the Americans. Yeah. Elephants can squeal, cry, scream, roar, snort, rumble, and groan. That's what I do every morning. That's, cool. that's pretty cool. Are you We're an very, elephant? I, I look, sometimes I wonder. Do you ever forget? I'm not sure. I don't remember forgetting. <laughs> Bull elephants only use 30% of the calls, preferring to remain stoic. <laughs> so the lady elephants and the kids are a bit more verbal. Right, yes. Here's the interesting part. We don't recognise most of these because they're at such a low frequency. Our monkey ears just don't pick them up. Like, they're super bassy. Mm. Okay, so this elephant, it's moved a little bit further away. Thank goodness. S- several kilometers away. Well, that's that's that sounds like a safe distance between me and a giant land mammal. And they can still communicate with each other. Phones? In optimum conditions, their sound yes. carries 285 square kilometers. That's that's a lot. But they're not trumpeting. They're not talking. They're singing. What? They communicate doing a really bassy Hum. Oh, can I um can can I just say can I just for our for our American listeners one square kilometer is one by ten to the twenty six square angstroms. So there two, you go. So two hundred eighty five square kilometers would be two point eight five by ten to the twenty eight square angstroms. Very helpful. Very helpful. That's can we get look. back just, to the elephants? I'm just I'm just trying to point out Americans like bizarre measurements that have no connection to reality. So I'm just helping them out. In I'm their defence, under- in their defence, yeah. no measurements really have a an actual connection to reality. They're arbitrary yes, decisions. I'm I'm lifting up my my connections to realities from our number system now. There you go. Our fingers. We have base ten. Makes it very easy. It's very simple. Very simple system. You just. Add a zero. Look, I'm having this argument. They're wrong. We're not doing. We're not going down this path. Stop. Stop pandering to them, Dan. All right. No, you can. Pan, you can. Pan, I'm pandering no, to them. Stop. stop I'm not stop. talking about pandas. I'm talking about uh, elephants. Oh, sorry. Is it can pandas also rumble? I'm not sure. Ooh, it depends what you feed them into, I guess. <laughs> anyway, so the. <laughs> This elephant can send out some sort of some sort of low wave that can communicate around the world. They hum. They basically sing to each other across Ooh. the savanna, two hundred eighty-five square kilometers. That's pretty cool. Now, elephant populations are still decreasing. There oh. used to be millions of them, and they have they, they've dropped down. Like they won't last long. Soon, these beautiful creatures will be just gone, just gone. But for now, in the Namibian savanna. In the dead of the night, when the wind drops and all is cool and still, the whole place wakes up with the silent choir of the last of the singing elephants. If you'd like to buy what appears to be a blank CD but is definitely singing elephants, go to smartenough.org and click on the store. These prices, like the elephants, won't last. (laughs) Ha, 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 ha.
You have been listening to Dan at smartenough.org. Also, Greg at smartenough.org. You could follow us on Twitter, SE2KB. Hey, why not Facebook? That's got stuff. We put lots of stories up that are cool, sciencey, and related and things and whatnot. So, hey, put your own name down and chat to us. I don't know how the internet works. It's all good. Also, we have our own Twitter accounts. I'm, what's it? At, at symbol? Amper, <laughs> I'm ampersand, no, not ampersand. Uh, I'm ampersand DNA beast. And over <laughs> at your side? At the wah, T-H-E-W-A-H. Also at SE2KB, which is literally S-E-2, the number two, KB. We just did that. We did that at oh, the beginning. Did we? Yeah. Oh, I'm Follow confused. us on Twitter okay. at... That's how oh, we yeah, always yeah, start. Yeah, sorry, yeah. yeah, we just have... We're but going now, in we circles that. now. Now you can just jump into it. But or, you can follow or, me at Ampersand DNA Beast. Surely it should be D-N-A-J-J Beast. Oh, God damn it. I'm going to have to change it now. Just keep adding a new one every week. Yeah, that's going to make it hard to follow me and to email me. <laughs> uh, but if you do want to email uh, either of us, especially if you hear us say something wrong in the podcast, please do send an email in so that we can use it in our walk of shame. Ooh, we do love the walk of shame. And if you have saved someone's life using science, we want to hear about that too. You could become a... Uh, our knight's our knight's spatula. You could, you could get a knight's spatula <laughs> yes. by becoming a knight's bachelor of the, the most excellent order of smart enough to know better. And there's only one. Yet. There's only one person in there at the moment. Yes. Uh, but they did. They never claimed their knight spatula. So we still have the knight spatula. We, there is literally a spatula, a knight spatula. Like that, it's, we're not messing around here. This is an actual thing. Speaking of actual things, Go I'm going to do some do some sizzle. I'm working on some merch. Ooh, merch. Watch the feeds to get some more hints on what it might be. It's just a picture of Greg's face. That's right. Science. Look. <laughs> Look, it worked for the Vlogbrothers. They just have pictures of their face with pizza under it. It's all very confusing. Yeah, but have you seen the Vlogbrothers? They're very Compare pretty. their faces to our faces. Yeah, it's true. They're, they're very good-looking men. It's very sad. Damn you, Greens. Damn you, your pretty face and the saving of science. And as we always like to say... Don't forget the interviews, Dan. Hey, 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 hey. You only need to say that once. That's... That's... That's why I that. I can hear you beautifully. You can hear me, obviously. You certainly can. Almost too well. Yes, that's right. He says, oh, okay. That's Should it. I be no, 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 no. It wasn't you. It was us. That's my fault. We were just checking out. We forgot I, to check the inputs. I Oops. put the volume to five when it should have been at two. <laughs> I'm sure by the end of it, you will know more than you ever desired to. And <laughs> hopefully that will be a good thing. Yay. That, that sounds great. You so, are underestimating my desires. <laughs> So, oh, is that so? <laughs> so that sounded sexy than it was supposed yeah, to. Yeah, I think yeah, I think it was. Yeah, <laughs> Flinders University Department of Archaeology. That'll lead our listeners into a false sense of security, and then bam, space. <laughs> I seem to get a lot of astronomers onto the show. And I like the idea of just luring the, the people into a false sense of security. That's, a... That's what we like to do. We like to take the legs out from under our devoted <laughs> listeners. <laughs> it's nice that Dr. Gorman does it, but how does it affect me, Jane Blow, in the street? Well, that's the reason, because... You mean Jane Doe? Jane, no, Jane, no, Joe Blow, but Jane Blow. Jo- Jane Blow. Yes. Oh, okay. I just doesn't... Oh, I was trying something. Yeah. <laughs> I got a very different idea of what jo- Jane Blow is like. It's a, okay, great. That's not the yeah. point.
<laughs> Sorry. Dan's just making it. Jane Blow is the niece of Isabella Blow, the very famous hat patron. There you go. That's what <laughs> I was thinking. <laughs> and Perth is wonderful. Have you lived there before? Never been there as an adult. So I, I lived in Fremantle for a while a few years back, mm. and I loved it. I had a great time over there. Oh, so good. Excellent. I love I'm it. sure you will enjoy it similarly. And I've got to say I love Brisbane too, so lucky Dan being in Brisbane. <laughs> there you go, Dan. Yay. Where are you? Um, Adelaide. That place sucks. No. <laughs> That's not sucks. <laughs> $2, but that will be two American dollars. Just keep that in mind. Charging. How many angstroms is that? <laughs> She's a tutor, but she, she does um, reptile. She's a reptile person. She's she a reptile lot. person? I've heard She's about a... them. <laughs> so she, um, she runs she the will... government. <laughs> they run everything, man. 